As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. One question that I would like to see answered is whether there is any possibility for the human species to survive. Right now, the answer is no. It's an honor to introduce Professor Chomsky, one of the most influential figures in linguistics and the philosophy of language. By the way, I say introduce, but Chomsky has graced the Theories of Everything channel eight times before. This marks his ninth appearance. This channel may as well be called Theories of Gnome. Some of the questions explored today are as follows. How does introspection influence our understanding of ourselves and our use of language? So the answer seems self-evident, though introspection has its own limitations. How far can speech or language take us in our quest for self-knowledge? What's the role of language in perception? And can we even fully trust introspective insights? What are the implications that language models like GPT have for our understanding of language acquisition and comprehension? One may think that language models that model human-like responses imply understanding. Is that clear? Does this perceived understanding reside in the syntactic level and the semantic level? Do these models contribute to our knowledge of language, of a human language, our language? Or do they fall short because of inherent limitations, what would those be? Can you ground moral philosophy? What does that mean to even ground it? And how does that connect with symbol grounding? By the way, there's something called the symbol grounding problem. This is talked about in the Terence Deacon episode. I consider the symbol grounding problem to be the hard problem of meaning. My name's Kurt Jaimungle, and this is a channel called Theories of Everything, where we explore theories of everything, primarily from a physics perspective, but as well as attempting to understand the role consciousness has in nature. There are timestamps in the description for you to be able to revisit sections, as well as to contextualize by seeing effectively a table of contents. Every Toe video has timestamps that are manually and meticulously written, as I always appreciate, as well as learn more, when creators take the time to do so. At approximately the 20 minute mark, there will be a brief sponsor message, as sponsors help support this podcast. The Toe podcast is also supported by patrons. Thank you to all the patrons, every single one of you. When you donate, you allow me to work on this full time to put all my effort into Toe, into theories of everything, into bringing some of the most brilliant, the brightest minds that 
exist to the forefront of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people for free. Thank you. And if you'd like to contribute, then you can visit patreon.com slash Kurt Jaimungal, C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. Or there's a PayPal link in the description. Or you can even go to theoriesofeverything.org on Patreon and theoriesofeverything.org. You get access to episodes ad-free and earlier. Thank you and enjoy this podcast with Noam Chomsky. You may notice that I'm speaking to Chomsky fairly slowly and pronunciatively. That's because Chomsky indicated to me that he's hard of hearing, and so a printout of the questions prior, as well as deliberate speech, is something that he'd prefer. Hence the question numbers as well. If AI took over the decision-making power of the world's governments and energy systems, would it effectively become a benevolent dictator for the human species? And is this something we should want? Well, we have to ask ourselves what we mean by AI. That can mean anything. If you mean some kind of AI that can be invented in a fantasy, say a science fiction story, of course it can happen, because in a science fiction story you can make anything happen that you like. If we mean anything that is remotely on the horizon, then the question doesn't even arise. I mean, there's nothing in artificial intelligence that is even in the range of such questions. Systems that exist are very narrow. They basically involve reproduction of what they see in massive amounts of scanning of data, uh, all sorts of errors, serious errors. In fact, I'm sure, as you know, there was a recent uh, petition initiated by Max Tegmark, physicist at MIT, signed by a couple of thousand of the most active uh, proponents and advocates of these systems, wide range, calling for a moratorium on their development because of their harmful effects. Uh, That's because of serious effects. I mean, there are also comical effects, like, uh, I mean, the systems are very error prone. So a friend of mine, a colleague, for curiosity, I looked up a question, asked a question about himself. He got back a disquisition, most of it biographical, more or less accurate. But it also had him married to a linguist he never met, don't particularly like each other, and they have two children. Uh, somebody, not me, looked up something about me in computational science sent it to me, it's been a lot more or less accurate than it had me inventing one of the main uh, programming languages, which is called Chomsky Normal Form. There is something called Chomsky Normal Form, but it has a very remote relationship to a theory of programming languages, that's about it. But uh, you know, if you try to get into serious areas, 
this kind of error is not a joke. Okay, we will move on. How powerful can the use of introspection as a tool for self-knowledge be? There are many claims of gurus and yogic types accessing universal awareness through meditation. How justified is this belief? Well, I can't comment on that belief. I, have never, I don't know anything about it and have never seen any evidence for it. But we can uh, look at the case of introspection in areas which are areas of the sciences. So and we can ask, how far does it get us? Not very far. So take the case of language, put in my own field of study. You can show pretty conclusively that our introspection into the nature of what we're doing doesn't even come close to the mental operations that are taking place and uh, using, producing language and doing what we're doing now. The introspection carries us only as far as what's called inner speech, actually fragments of inner speech if you pay attention. But what's called inner speech is not language. It's uh, You can show that it's quite remote from, uh, it's part of the externalization of language in a particularly sensory, particular sensory motor medium, which is quite distinct from the internal mental processes that are taking place and the uh, the use of language for production, perception, and of course the nature of language. So we know that introspection is giving us a very superficial, partial uh, glimpse of some of the uh, external forms of whatever's going on in our mind. And we know this is the same in many other areas, but not just introspection, even perception. So direct visual perception gives us a very misleading interpretation of what we're in fact seeing. Take, say, the moon illusion. The moon illusion gives you a percept of a huge moon on the horizon, but that's uh, not only not what's there, but it's even not what you, if you do a careful experiment, it's not what's on the retina. In what ways do you think Eastern philosophical traditions, such as Buddhism or Taoism, could contribute to our understanding of language and the mind? They can contribute. I'll be all in favor of it, but I'm unaware of any example. Do you happen to agree with the Buddhists that suggest suffering comes from desire? Not in my experience or what I've read about. Somebody's being tortured, they're suffering, but it's not coming from desire. Unless you make it tautological, the desire not to be tortured. Professor, if you could have one question answered, what question would you want answered most and why? Of all the questions you could choose from. Well, the one question that I would like to see answered is whether there is any possibility 
within our current system of institutional structures for the human species to survive? Right now, the answer, likely answer is no, but maybe there's an answer that could show some way in which it's possible. Professor, I was watching an interview with you from the 60s where someone was asking whether we learn language by learning the rules of the language, and you pointed out that most people learn language unconsciously, without instruction. You then added, no one knows all the rules of language, and I'm curious if this is still true. If it is, what progress has been made and where is the largest gap in our knowledge of the rules? Well, there's an enormous amount that's been learned since the 1960s. I could, if we had time, I could review it, but we have a much closer understanding of the basic properties of uh, Notice that the question arises on two levels. What do we know? When you talk about the rules of language, do you mean the rules of specific languages or the deeper question of the principles of universal grammar, the fundamental nature of the faculty of language? On individual languages, we know vastly more. There's been a huge explosion of research on typologically varied languages of a kind that had never taken place in history. So massive information about many languages of which there'd never been any, not only had they never been looked at, but they'd never been questioned in this kind of depth. So that's enormously expanded. On the more fundamental question of the nature of so what's called universal grammar, that means the theory of the uh, innate faculty of language. There, there's been quite considerable progress. Uh, you couldn't have guessed in the 1960s what we're talking about today. Are there gaps? Enormous gaps. But that's because it's part of science. Take any science you like, there's enormous gaps. Uh, take physics most advanced science, can't find 90% uh, of what constitutes the universe. Well, it's sort of a gap, if you like. But, uh, okay, let's move on. This recursive property, merge, has been claimed to be a fundamental characteristic that distinguishes language from other cognitive faculties. Merge is an indispensable operation of a recursive system, which takes two syntactic objects, A and B, and forms a new object, the set of A and B. How is merge detected in interviews with people, or more generally, through examining examples of the use of writing or speech? First of all, I should say that the formula there, G equals set AB, that's not actually merge, that's binary set formation. Merge is a case of binary set formation, which has many other properties, much could go into it, but the question is how is merge detected in the interviews and so on? Well, about the same way that uh, the principles of, uh, that the laws of motion are, uh, are uh, detected when you look at leaves blowing in the wind. You don't detect the laws of nature by looking at phenomena. That's why people do experiments. Uh, 
that you don't, if you look to do interviews with people, you're not going to find out very much about uh, how uh, genes uh, provide uh, information for proteins to be formed. That's not what science is about. You know, I mean, if, if a scientist or inquiry has proceeded beyond the most primitive level, absolutely most primitive, you're not going to see the principles and actual events and phenomena of the world. I mean, that's why people do experiments, after all. You don't just look at the phenomena around you. You try to idealize, eliminate the irrelevant aspects, and it takes, again, the moon illusion. Uh, nobody actually, there's no real explanation for it, but everyone rational assumes that the moon isn't larger at the horizon. And you can do experimentation, which sharpens up what's actually happening. But that's just true of everything. You're not going to find out anything of any significance just by looking at phenomena. You just get, maybe you get some statistical regularities of things that are happening, but that's very far from an understanding of anything that's going on in any area, certainly here. It's kind of interesting that in areas like language, the question is asked. It would never be asked in other fields, but it's obvious you can't find out anything. Why is it asked about language or other aspects of human mental life? Well, there's an interesting background here. Now, there once was, uh, at one time, there were notions of met metaphysical dualism, Cartesian dualism, two different substances, mind and body. Well, that's collapsed, but it's been replaced by something much more pernicious. Metaphysical dualism was a scientific theory which had justification at the time. Turned out to be wrong, but most scientific theories do. What's been replaced by is a kind of methodological dualism, which has no virtues. What it says is we should look at human mental processes differently than the way we look at the rest of the physical world. That's very common. And this is an example of it. And nobody would ever ask a question of the, like this about, say, biology or chemistry. But you do ask it about language. It's not making a criticism. This is common uh, all through philosophy and so on, so on other fields. Uh, looking at expecting to find things about language by observing phenomena, we would never expect that in any other discipline. I mean, even history or sociology. But uh, mental phenomena are just somehow treated as if they're just not part of the physical world. It shows up all over the place. This is a second part to the same question. Do the syntactic objects that merge together in a merge operation generically have subset categories? Or when they are specific syntactic objects, do they have varying properties and sub-distinctions? Well, they have many complex properties. So, I mean, when you're, when you say you're merging a subject and a predicate, look into the details, it's 
not what we're seeing, but what underlies them, but something like a noun phrase and a verb phrase, let's say. They each have complex internal properties uh, developed by the uh, structure building operations of the language, which are all well beyond introspection. There is a strong argument, I think, that they are probably based on merge, but it takes work to show that. Now, the last question on merge from Kelly is, is the concept of merge and the underlying process of merge similar or different than other concepts which may or may not be related or credible, such as concepts by Mark Turner within cognitive linguistics called conceptual blending and its more detailed description called conceptual integration networks? Well, to the extent that conceptual blending has been made at all clearly, basically no connection. One more merge question. Before humans experienced the mutation that yielded the merge operation, did they possess a lexicon of conceptually rich items that functioned as complex calls, somewhat like those used by current monkeys and primates? Well, there's a famous, there's a famous article that I often urge people to read by Richard Lewontin, one of the most important modern evolutionary uh, biologists, uh, passed away a couple of years ago. So an article in the last volume of a multi-volume encyclopedia published by MIT called Invitation to Cognitive Science, a lot of very valuable articles. Uh, Dick Lewontin was asked to write an article on evolution of cognition, and uh, that bears on this question, what was going on in the early stages, and he gives a careful discussion. Uh, he finally says, uh, his final words basically are tough luck. There's no way by any known method of the study of evolution to find out what was going on a couple hundred thousand years ago. Uh, I mean, in principle, it's not an unanswerable question, but we have no way to answer it least no known way. So the answer to the question is, how can you find out? How can we find out what was going on? We can look at the complex calls used by monkeys and other primates. We can study those. They don't even have a remote relationship to anything in human language. And in fact, the very, there have been very elaborate efforts to try to see if you can train chimpanzees closest to us to uh, develop anything remotely like language and totally impossible as any biologist would expect. 12 million years of evolutionary separation, why should you have any connection? So as far as we know, the particular uh, rules and entities that enter into human language seem to be a unique human possession, which really shouldn't surprise us very much. There isn't any other species that's doing what you and I are now doing now. Uh, Theodore Dobzhansky, one of the great evolutionary biologists, once said that 
each species is unique, and humans are the uniquest of all, have properties that are unknown elsewhere in the organic world. Language and cognition are the core ones. Have you ever attempted to follow up with John Lilly's Dolphin Human Communication Project? Dolphins have a definite and complex language system that's been recorded and analyzed but not fully translated to a complete understanding. Also, apparently sperm whales have the most intricate language. How true is this? How does one define this complexity? Study it the same way you study anything else. Now, first of all, we should be cautious about the use of the word language. What do we mean by that? Now, whatever they have, it's, as the questioner points out correctly, it's a communication project. Communication project. Every organism has means of communication, down to bacteria. Trees communicate. Communication is all over the place. But human language is not a communication system. It's used for communication, but fundamental design is actually dysfunctional for communication, as easily shown. So calling it a language is already a questionable term. It's a communication system. How do you study it? Same way you study any other communication system. Trees, for example, study the way roots interconnect to transmit signals from one tree to another and uh, offer the neighboring trees protection mechanisms against uh, parasites or something that's harming the tree. The way bacteria communicate, the way I look at the desert ants in my backyard traveling in a line and I notice that uh, they bump into each other along the way. I presume they're communicating, and an ant, a person studying ants, would study their communication system uh, that has been done extensively for bees, for example. And you would do the same with some dolphins, and uh, uh, we'll talk about a dolphin-human communication project that's a little bit different. We can communicate with other animals. Like I have sitting under my desk right now, two animals I can communicate with, but it's got nothing to do with language. I mean, I use language, but what they're going on in their heads is something totally different. They're detecting some noises that mean something to them, but uh, like run outside to play or something. But uh, the um, but all of these things can be studied in a normal fashion just without illusions. We shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that something like a communication system is going to tell us something about the nature of language. They're all very interesting. Many of them are more, have complexity that we don't have. Like humans can't communicate as efficiently as uh, honeybees do with regard to their particular concerns, like the distance quality of a flower. So it's not a matter of more or yes, just more or less, just totally different systems. Thank you. There has been a growing trend within philosophy, especially in the analytic tradition, that nowadays the main task of philosophy is to clarify questions and nurture sciences, which are in their infancy, while needed. Would you agree with this, and do you think there are other roles for philosophy to play? 
Well, there is, I mean, to say it's a grow, it is, there are philosophers, very good ones, who take this position, like John Austin, one of the, my view, most important modern philosophers, this was pretty much his view. But as he would have told you, it's nothing new. Uh, this is John Locke, for example. You look back to John Locke, he said his role is to try to clear the underbrush so that inquiry can then proceed without confusions and misunderstanding. Well, that's basically the same thing. Uh, philosophy traditionally has nurtured science in a very obvious and important way. The philosophy and science weren't distinguished until fairly recently. In fact, if you study at Oxford today, uh, you study natural science, natural philosophy and moral philosophy. Natural philosophy is what we call science. Till the mid-19th century, there basically no distinction. The word science in its modern sense was introduced I think, by William Ewell, I think, in around 1850 or so. And what happened up until then, you couldn't tell who was a philosopher, who was a scientist. Uh, Berkeley could debate the accuracy of Newton's proofs, for example. But uh, the sciences advanced sufficiently by the late 19th century, so you had to have special knowledge to become directly involved in the sciences. It wasn't just anybody could talk about them. Uh, there still were philosophers like, say, Bertrand Russell or more modern times, people like Hilary Putnam, who were very sophisticated in the sciences, but it's different interests and concerns. But I think philosophy always has uh, nurtured new sciences, has very significant role with regard to the emerging sciences, like take the cognitive sciences. That's pretty recent. We're not even in a Galilean stage, in my opinion. And here, uh, it's hard to distinguish philosophy and science, just as it was in the early scientific revolution or well into the 19th century. So clarifying concepts, uh, clearing the underbrush, as Locke put it, very important aspect of philosophy. Of course, there are many other things, many other topics. Like, can we ground moral philosophy in some way? That's a different kind of topic, but perfectly sound one for the philosophy and many others. What does it mean to ground moral philosophy? And is this related to the symbol grounding problem? Not really. That's a different question. Symbol grounding is an interesting question, but a different one. To ground moral philosophy means to find some basis from which we can maybe deduce is too strong, but at least find some rational basis for the uh, what we take to be ethical behavior, ethical judgments, and so on. That's become a pretty concrete question in the last 30 or 40 years. There's very interesting work it was initiated by uh, John Mikhail, who was a grad student in philosophy, did a thesis on this, uh, then went on to write a book about it. 
which uh, uh, reconstructed a lot of John Rawls's work in terms of Rawls' initial proposals and efforts, which he later abandoned, to try to find uh, something like a grammar of philosoph of ethical judgment. And then uh, uh, there was a lot of criticism of it. Mikhail goes through the criticism, I think, undermines it quite effectively, and then proceeds with the project and uh, went on to do to open experimental work along with uh, Elizabeth Spelke, a very good experimental psychologist, worked together on just trying to find uh, universal uh, moral principles by looking at children, different cultures, and so on. Uh, that work was later expanded by others, uh, Mark Hauser and others. And uh, to the extent that it succeeds, you get uh, um, Matthias Malmann, a philosopher, has done a recently a very, I think, quite profound work on these issues. Uh, the uh, to the to the extent that it succeeds, you get a you can hope to get a conception of something like the faculty of language, the faculty of moral judgment, some innate system that has principles and uh, uh, that and a, a kind of a rational structure that allows one to draw from it conclusions about what our innate moral judgments are. Then comes the, the grounding problem. How do we know that's the right moral? These are the right moral judgments. How do we know? Suppose we knew what are the moral judgments that are inherent in our nature. Well, then comes a question. In fact, you can ask, is it a question? Is there anything beyond this? In fact, similar questions arise for epistemology, as in fact, uh, Matthias Malmann, who I mentioned, has studied this point, raised, discussed this point. But if you think about epistemology, it's also based on, uh, I'm talking about what Quine calls natural epistemology, epistemology in David Hume's sense. Epistemology is a science that seeks to find what Hume called the secret uh, origins and principles of some name like word like that of our understanding and our natural reasoning how do we actually do it well if you think there's i suppose you can you can you can study that let's take uh, what looks like the most to me at least the most promising approach to it charles sanders purse's conceptions of abduction never worked out very carefully open philosophical question, but his point, which was plausible, I think, is that uh, there's something that allows us to, in a particular situation of a level, of having reached a certain level of understanding or comprehension of whatever we're studying, say the natural world, uh, there's something in our minds that enables us to put forth a limited set of potential hypotheses that might explain it. It's got to be a limited set or else we'd never get anywhere. And he gives some good arguments that that's the way the history of science has proceeded. Well, I suppose you can make some sense of that. 
find out what it is that determines this limited set of principles that carries us up to the next stage of understanding. Uh, the uh, secret springs and origins of our intellectual nature in Hume's terms, then would come the same grounding problem. How do we know these are the right ones? Maybe our intuitive mode of inquiry and investigation is not the one that leads to the truth. Same kind of question. And then you can ask, is it really a question? Is there a possible answer to it? These are all quite interesting philosophical questions, I think, which are barely being pursued, but uh, should be, could be, and see how to pursue them. What is the symbol grounding problem, and do you see it as solved? Symbol grounding problem is what, how symbols are used in language or any other system. So take uh, a, an infant. An infant learns uh, words very rapidly at the peak moments of language acquisition, like two years old or so. Uh, an infant is picking up uh, a word practically every waking hour. Virtually no evidence, maybe one presentation. You look at the nature of the words carefully, they're very intricate meanings. Uh, it's not you look at a tree and say tree, and that's the meaning, nothing remotely like that. Very intricate, complex meanings. This was already known in classical Greece, we now know a lot more about it. Well, then the question comes, how does this symbol, tree, river, house, dog, and so on, what's, what does it have to do with the external world? That's a serious question. It doesn't just pick out elements in the world and show that that's false. There's much more complex structure about what could be a tree, what could be a house, what persistence of the uh, question that troubled Locke and Hume still troubles people. What about things that uh, were our perception, persistence of objects when we don't perceive them, let's say, or existence of objects that we've never seen? Uh, what kind are they? Uh, what kind of properties does a person have? that makes it the same person under radically different changes, same for a river or a house or anything else. All of these are questions about symbol grounding, most of them not very seriously investigated, though they could be. One of the reasons they're not investigated is because of illusions, the illusions that there's a simple associative relationship between a symbol and something in the external world. So child sees a tree, mother says tree, okay, kid knows tree, doesn't work with them. Can you expound on the below quotation? Science is a bit like the joke about the drunk who is looking under a lamppost for a key that he's lost on some other side of the street because that's where the light is. It has no other choice. So this comes from Noam Chomsky's letter to the author, 14th of June, 1993. Okay, well, um, that's what we're stuck with. We look under the lamppost where there is some, I mean, the story is about a, a drunk who's 
looking under a lamppost and somebody comes up and asks him, uh, what are you looking for? And he says, I'm looking for a key. And uh, the person asks him, where did you lose it? He says, well, I lost it on the other side of the street. So you ask, well, why are you looking here then? Because that's where the light is. There's no light over there. That's what we're stuck with. We're looking where there is some level of understanding. Maybe the answer is somewhere else. Well, occasionally there are people like Einstein, let's say, who says, let's look under a different lamppost, but it's pretty rare in the history of science. Is the mind-body problem misconceived? If so, how so? Well, we have to ask first what it is. There is a classical mind-body problem, basically Cartesian. Uh, Descartes famously uh, postulated uh, res cogitans alongside of res estensa. So there's extended same ent entity that's matter, physical, material, then there's the uh, mental world, which is separate from that. If I look for some connection between them. That was a perfectly reasonable scientific hypothesis, nothing mystical about it. He, Descartes, like all scientists of the period from Galileo through Newton beyond, adopted what was called the mechanical philosophy, the idea that the world is a uh, a complex uh, artifact, sort of like the artifacts that skilled artisans were producing uh, at the time, quite very extensively all over Europe. Uh, skilled artisans were producing uh, uh, mechanical clocks that could do all sorts of complicated things. Uh, uh, the fountain, the, the gardens at Versailles, as you walk through them, all kind of things were happening and uh, playing uh, things that looked like uh, people playing a, a role in plays and so on. And then Galileo, his contemporaries, and others, Leibniz, Luton, Newton concluded, well, that's what the world is, just a complicated system, uh, but basically uh, mechanical gears, levers, things pushing and pulling each other, and so on. Uh, Descartes just routinely assumed that, everyone did. And then Descartes tried to show that, well, his main scientific work was to try to show that, uh, in fact, you could give a mechanical explanation for phenomena of the world, including a good deal of uh, human, human uh, understanding and behavior of sensation and perception. He thought he could give a mechanical uh, interpretation of that. But he observed that some things don't fall within that. In fact, one of his main examples in the Discourse on Method was language. He said, if you look at what people are doing there, there's no mechanical interpretation for what you and I are now doing. It's uh, it's maybe impelled by circumstances, but not compelled by them. You could choose differently, and you choose appropriately. So somehow people are making appropriate uh, uh, 
un, undetermined use of language in ways that we could call creative. It's a long history behind this. He wasn't the first to point it out. But uh, then, like any scientist, he postulated a principle to account for this. That's the second principle, race cogitants. That's the classical mon-body problem. Well, it was the props were knocked, knocked under it by Newton, who showed, didn't say anything about the mind, but he showed that the mechanical system is not true, showed the world is not a mechanical system. Uh, that's his. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. One of the main contents of Newton's Principia is to undermine, uh, to show that Descartes' proofs just didn't work. Uh, It had no account of the universe in mechanical terms. In fact, there isn't any. Uh, Newton postulated principles that are outside the mechanical world. 
Newton himself regarded this as a total absurdity and didn't believe a word of it. Uh, he said, nobody of any scientific understanding can believe this, but it seems to be true. And that's why he, he never wrote a book on uh, on science, what, a, what would have been called at the time principles of philosophy. He never wrote that. He wrote a a mathematical uh, principles. That's just an account of what happens, but without any explanation. His famous comment, I make no hypotheses, is because he couldn't, he said, I have no physical explanation. I can just say, here's the way it works. Here's the mathematical principles. Well, that ended the mind-body problem in the classical sense until somebody says what tells us what matter is. Uh, nobody can tell that up to the present day. Then there's no mind-body problem in the, uh, in the classical sense. This was understood, incidentally, like John Locke uh, immediately after the appearance of Principia uh, pointed out that uh, he put it in a theological framework, standard framework of the day, and he said, just as, as Newton has shown, God assigned properties to matter that we cannot conceive of. He said, similarly, God may have superadded to matter the principles of thought. Uh, in other words, thought is just some form of organized matter. Where we don't know what matter is, but whatever it turns out to be, uh, the tides, the planets, so on, they follow it by principles we can't understand, but we can work with them, and uh, maybe thought is the same. And that was pursued very extensively through the 18th century by leading figures. They reached its peak with uh, Joseph Priestley, chemist, philosopher at the end of the 18th century, with quite extensive studies of how thought can be a property of organized matter. Then it was pretty much forgotten, rediscovered in the late 20th century without any knowledge of the history, and it's now considered part of uh, philosophy and neuroscience, but, but it comes straight out of the collapse of the mind-body problem. Well, is there another mind-body problem? Well, commonly these days, the mind-body problem is formulated in totally different terms, unrelated to the classical one. It's usually formulated in terms of first person versus third person uh, uh, conceptions of the world. So the first person conception is what I sense no, the moon. The moon's big on the horizon. That's first person. The third person approach is what the scientist from the outside says about it. If you pursue that, you get different conclusions. Some people call that a mind-body problem. I think that's a very bad term for it. And I think that's just a misformulation of the way we should look at the problem. There's an interesting interesting work on this, including a recent book by uh, an Australian uh, philosopher, very good one, Peter Slezak. I think it's called The Cartesian uh, Illusion or something like that. The, um, 
Cartesian amphitheater or something like that. You know, but uh, uh, but that's now something like that is often called the mind-body problem, which it shouldn't be, in my opinion. There was the scientific question, which essentially was resolved by Newton. There's no body. There's no matter. There's no physical. So there's no mind-body problem. Thank you, sir. Would it be fair to argue that one reason why ChatGPT and other large language models seem so human-like in their responses is that as a result of their training, they have inferred, that is, made sense of, an underlying and imminent semantic grammar to map the various sentences to their corresponding semantic underpinnings. If you'd like, you can watch this video by Sabine Hossenfelder, a physicist, arguing that ChatGPT does indeed understand language. Does an artificially intelligent chatbot understand what it's chatting about? A year ago, I'd have answered this question with clearly not. But I've now arrived at the conclusion that the AIs that we use today do understand what they're doing, if not very much of it. I'm not saying this just to be controversial. I actually believe it, I believe. I took a look at the first half of the video. I didn't follow it through, but... She's a very good physicist, but I think she's asking meaningless questions. Like, she's asking, I mean, she, what she's interested in, is, and she makes it very clear at the beginning, is understanding quantum physics. She's thinking of a famous comment by Richard Feynman, which he's a leading quantum physicist, in which he said, nobody understands quantum physics, but we know how to use it. And... Hassenfelder's position is, if we know how to use it, we understand it. That's all that understanding is. And then she says, well, if ChatGPT uses language, then it understands it. And then it goes on from there, and she talks about Chinese, Cyril's Chinese room and so on. But that's basically the issue. Well, first of all, that wildly overestimates chat VPT. It does nothing like it. But even if we accept that, it's just a terminological question about what we're going to call understand. Not very interesting. So suppose uh, uh, you go to a museum, go to any museum, you'll see art students carefully uh, copying uh, paintings by masters. A painting by Van Gogh or Rembrandt or something. Well, what they're producing, uh, will we call that creating uh, a work of art? I mean, in a certain sense, yes, they're doing things I can't do. There's a lot of creativity involved. But is that creating a work of art? Well, you can call it that if you want, but it's not an interesting question same about understanding. If, uh, if I copy a novel by Tolstoy, am I creating a, an artistic, am I making an artistic contribution? In a certain sense, yes, copied it, it's there. I'm using it. Uh, do I understand? Do I, is it a work of art? Of course not. Well, that's chatbots. It's basically all the large language models are basically complex versions of one or another kind of plagiarism. You want to call that understanding your business? It's like asking, does a submarine swim? You want to call that swimming? Okay, 
but uh, there's no there's no substantive issue have you seen the paper that's called modern language models refute chomsky's approach to language the one by stephen piantadosi if so what do you make of it well it's uh, i mean unlike a lot of people who write about this he does know about large language models but the article makes absolutely no sense has a minor problem and a major problem the minor problem uh, is that it's beyond absurdity to think that you can learn anything about a two-year-old acquiring language on almost no evidence by looking at a bunch of supercomputers scanning uh, 50 terabytes of data and looking for statistical regularities and stringing them together. To think that from that you can learn anything about an infant is so beyond absurdity that it's not even worth talking about. That's the minor problem. The major problem is that in principle, you can learn nothing. In principle, make it 100 terabytes, you know, use 20 supercomputers. Just bring out the, in principle, impossibility even worse. For more clearly, for a very simple reason. These systems work just as well for impossible languages that children can't acquire as they do for possible languages that children do acquire. It's kind of as if a physicist came along and said, I got a great new theory. It counts for a lot of things that happen, a lot of things that can't possibly happen, and I can't make any distinction among them. We would just laugh. You know, that's, I mean, any explanation of anything says, here's what, here's why things happen, here's why other things don't happen. You can't make that distinction, you're doing nothing. And that's irremediable. It's built into the nature of the systems. So the more sophisticated they become at dealing with actual language, the more it's demonstrated that they're telling us nothing in principle about language, about learning, or about cognition. So there's a minor problem with this paper and a major one. The minor problem is the simple absurdity of thinking that looking at anything of the scale could tell you about what's happening. The major problem is it can't do it in principle. Yes, I heard you describe this as if a physicist came along and said, I have a theory and it's two words, anything goes. Well, that's basically the large language models. You give it a system that designed in order to violate the principles of language, it'll do just as well, maybe better, because it can use simple algorithms that aren't used by natural language. So it's basically, like I said, or like I say, suppose some guy comes along with an improvement on the periodic table, says, I got a theory that includes all the possible elements, even those that haven't been discovered, and all kinds of impossible ones, and I can't tell any difference. It's not an improvement on the periodic table. That's telling you nothing about chemistry. That's built into the design of the system.
It's not remediable. Are there any recent developments or complete description of Chomsky's inclusive condition? Further, what is the standing of the bare phrase structure theory? Are there serious attempts made in its development? Is it still of interest for syntacticians? It's of interest, but of course it's been much developed since then. That was 30 years ago. The inclusiveness condition by now, you don't have to bother saying. It's just, uh, it's just a consequence of the, uh, if you look at the, uh, an, any form of growth and development, whatever it is, arms and legs, you know, language, anything. There's basically going to be three factors involved. Uh, one of them is whatever the internal structure is, ultimately the innate structure. That's one factor. Some kind of external data which triggers the internal systems, partially shapes them. Third, laws of nature crucial. In the case of language, the relevant laws of nature are principles of computational efficiency. We can think of those as laws of nature. Well, by now, the last couple of decades, there's been extensive work showing how principles of computational efficiency determine a very large part of the outcome of the growth and acquisition process. And the inclusiveness condition just fell to the side as a consequence of these principles. Bare phrase structure was an early attempt to separate out many different factors involving involved in syntactic structure that's now extended quite considerably. So it's still there, but as the basis for much more uh, sophisticated developments, which have much wider empirical range as well. Professor, can you explain what intentionality is to the audience, as well as myself, and what your views are on Searle's Chinese room experiment are? Intentionality, this is with a T, not an S, notice. Intentionality with an S is sometimes mixed up with it, but it's totally different. Because it has to do with aboutness. So what am I talking about when I say the sun is setting? Uh, if I say uh, I crossed the river, what am I talking about? That's intentionality. Very complex question. Goes back to the pre-Socratics. We have a lot to say. That's like the grounding problem. Uh, the Chinese room experiment, I think, is uh, just a bit of confusion. I think the answer to the problem had already been given by Wittgenstein in his usual aphoristic manner, not explicit. He, he wasn't talking about understanding, but about thinking. It's about the same. He said, uh, people think maybe dolls and spirits. What that meant is we use the word thinking to refer to what people do. But like other words, it has a kind of open texture. So it's not precisely determined what we, so maybe we'll extend the use to things that are kind of like people. Dolls and what he meant by dolls and spirits. Well, we don't extend it to rooms. We don't 
talk about rooms thinking. Okay, that's like saying we don't say that submarines swim. There's no substantive issue. It's not the way the word is used. We don't use the word understand for rooms. We use it for people and things sort of like people. I don't think there's any more involved than that. That's just a terminological point. If we look into it further, if you had a, you developed a system, forget the room, let's say a, a robot, which looked like humans, and you were able to build into the robot all of the rules and principles of that constitute that are coded in our brains. We know some of them, not all of them. If you could do something like that, then you could ask the question, is the robot thinking? In fact, that question was asked in the 17th century. The 17th century uh, after Descartes, some of his followers, in particular uh, Jacques de Cordemois, Cartesian philosopher, uh, formulated what's now called the Turing test, but in a much more uh, scientific way. He said, suppose there's some organism that looks like us and is able to respond to any a question or statement that we formulate in the way that humans do, no matter how hard we make the problem. Then he said, we would have good reason to think that it has a mind like ours. Notice that he was talking scientifically, metaphysically. Has a mind means a thing. This is like a litmus test for acidity. Want to find that? Remember, the idea was there is an entity, the mind, separate from body. We want a test to find out when it's there, like a litmus test. And he formulated what's basically Turing's imitation game uh, to say, uh, here's a litmus test we could use for an organism that looks like us, is incorporating Wittgenstein's insight. Well, that's. Uh, that was a scientifically reasonable uh, approach at the time when the mind-body problem had a scientific basis. doesn't anymore, so can't do that. Speaking of metaphysics, what are your thoughts on extending generative grammar into metaphysics, such as the CTMU, which is the Cognitive Theoretic Model of the Universe by Christopher Langan? like asking, how can we extend the theory of uh, genetic, trans, trans, uh, genetic formulation of protein, genetic determination of proteins into a theoretical model of the universe? It's not the right kind of question. These are theories of particular organic entities the theory of genetics, RNA, formation of proteins, protein folding, those are studies of particular organic entities. Generative grammar is the study of another particular organic entity, something coded into our brains 
which is unique to humans and apparently common to humans. So, I mean, you could, I mean, it has a theoretical structure. And of course, the theoretical structure could be something like the theoretical structure for other questions, like, uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a cognitive theoretical model of the universe, but a model of the universe has a theoretical structure. Well, all theoretical structures have something in common, like they have a deductive character. Uh, the consequences have to follow from the premises and so on. But I don't see that, I mean, we could ask the same question about any other subpart of science. It's all going to, to the extent you know anything, it has a theoretical structure, which you can ask if other parts of the universe, maybe all of the universe, has that theoretical structure. Professor, what are your views on solipsism and the role of consciousness, observer, in creating reality? Is this similar to the problem of anything goes? No. Our particular way of observing reality is a concrete phenomenon in the actual world. It's not anything goes. Take the moon illusion again. My conscious experience, can't get over it, can't overcome it, is that the moon is big at the horizon. With all you might know, the greatest astronomer in the world will still see that. That's our conscious experience. Well, is it creating reality? No. Reality is not that the mind is, that the moon is bigger. You can discover that in other ways. So therefore, nobody believes that the moon is bigger, even though that's all that we see and there's no explanation for it. Still don't believe it because there's so much counter evidence. So uh, you don't create reality that way. Now, there's a sense in which our immediate experience creates reality. It's the kind of issue that's raised by, in a very interesting way, by Nelson Goodman, particularly an outstanding philosopher in uh, his work on what he calls star making. So he begins by asking the question, uh, take a look at the constellation, say Orion, is the constellation a thing in the world? Or is it a construction of our mind? what he calls a version of the world. Well, it's a construction of our mind, it's a version. Then he goes on to say, well, what about the stars that constitute Orion? Are they things in the world? Or are they just a version? He concludes they're a version. We could talk about what we call about, talk about stars, we could talk about in other ways, like concentrations of energy and the general flux of energy in the universe and so on. And then he goes on to say, well, is there anything that isn't just a version? Is there any reason to ask whether this, what do we gain by postulating a reality behind the versions? Then goes interesting discussions. There's a book on this with uh, his, his introduction commentary by number of other philosophers, Hilary Putnam, Israel Scheffler, a couple of others, I think Carl Hampel. Uh, those are interesting questions. Hear that sound? 
That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. They can't give a simple answer to them, but there is some kind of sense in which our immediate perceptions are the basis for developing our notion of reality. Actually, Russell talked about this uh, over a century ago, about a century ago, when he was saying that, if you think about, he says, our highest level of confidence is in our our immediate sensory, our immediate consciousness, that's our highest level of confidence. And then most of the rest of what we do in inquiry is trying to find an explanation for it. Part of the explanation we find is that our consciousness misleads us, tells us things that aren't true about them. That's one of the things we discover when we try to find an explanation for the consciousness, which is the thing we have highest confidence in. I think he's basically on the right track. There's an increasing number of claims that the approach to universal grammar doesn't hold up to Bayesian modeling. Is universal grammar still the proper way to view human language usage? Uh, Universal grammar is the proper way by definition. Universal grammar is defined as the correct theory, whatever it is, of the innate language faculty. So it can't be wrong because proved by definition. We don't know what it is. We can try to find it, but whatever it is, whatever the true theory is of the innate language faculty, that's universal grammar by definition and the modern usage of the term. Bayesian modeling doesn't, doesn't, add, doesn't address this question. Bayesian modeling is concerned with how beliefs, uh, theories are acquired. That's a different question. Uh, I don't think it's particularly helpful, but that's a different question altogether. So it's kind of asking, how do we acquire the theory of universal grammar? Uh, I don't 
think that's the way it happens. I think it's normal evolutionary processes. In what ways do you think AGI should be implemented, and in what ways does its implementation scare you? Well, there's no implementation that can scare me because there's no implement. There's no theory. There's nothing there. I mean, AGI is a goal of the early pioneers of artificial intelligence. People I knew, in fact, you go back to the 1950s. Uh, people like Herbert Simon, uh, Al Newell, uh, early Marvin Minsky. Uh, were concerned with uh, trying to see if you could use what they call AI to uh, uh, understand the nature of intelligence, of learning, of thinking, and so on. It's basically part of cognitive science, asking, can we use the computational devices and theories that were coming into existence at the time as ways of approaching scientific questions. Now, that would be AGI, but that's been pretty much abandoned. In fact, it's sometimes ridiculed as a good old-fashioned AI or something. Now we do different things, basically engineering projects, which don't ask these questions. Who are your linguistic successors that are on the right path toward developing your linguistic theories? Also, what is the generator that generates grammar? Generative grammar is just, the term generative is just the normal mathematical term. So you have a axiom system for arithmetic, say. It generates an infinite number of proofs, geometrical objects, which are well-formed proofs. That's generation. Nothing different in generative grammar. You can't ask what generates it. The system is one that has a finite number. Of fi it's a finitary program which yields an infinite output. That's generation in a technical sense. There's plenty of very fine younger linguists doing outstanding work on this. Could be unfair. And if you look at articles of mine, I list many of them in the acknowledgments as collaborators and doing independent work. That doesn't, it's only a small sample. Is our language capacity identical or related to our arithmetic capacity? That's a very interesting question, which also has interesting historical background. Uh, the question, as far as the question itself is concerned, our current conception of universal grammar uh, has the property that if you take the simplest possible uh, form of it, take the take the basic structure building operation, say merge, if you take the simplest form of that, absolutely simplest, and you limit the uh, any any generative procedure, any system of computational system is going to have rules and atomic elements, elements to which it applies for language. These will be the lexical elements, smallest meaning-bearing elements, kind of word-like, but not really words. 
So if you take the simplest computational procedure, cut it down to its limits, reduce the lexicon to one element, you get the basis for arithmetic. You get the successor function and addition, essentially. Then you can easily tweak it to get knowledge or arithmetic. So in that sense, it could be, we don't know, but it could be that our knowledge of arithmetic is just an offshoot of the language faculty. It's formally possible, because our knowledge of arithmetic is can, it can be formulated as the ultimate simplest version of our language faculty. Is that correct or not? Well, that's an empirical question, could be. Now that goes back to a very interesting debate at the origins of the theory of evolution. Uh, Darwin and Wallace, co-founders of theory of evolution, had a debate and discussion about what seemed to them correctly as a serious paradox. They assumed correctly, as it turns out, they didn't have the evidence, but they assumed that all humans have uh, basically knowledge of arithmetic. And they asked, how could this possibly be? It had never been used in evolutionary history, so it couldn't have been selected. Uh, so how can it possibly be? Is there something other than natural selection? Darwin held to the idea that somehow it could have been selected. Uh, Wallace argued there's some other factor in evolution beyond natural selection. We now know there are many other factors, but they didn't know that. Uh, now, maybe there's an answer, maybe, to the Darwin-Wallace uh, debate. Conceivably, uh, arithmetic is just either an offshoot of the language faculty or an instantiation of whatever uh, rewiring of the brain yielded the language faculty. Maybe it also simultaneously yielded the minimal system, which yields pretty much comes close to yielding knowledge of arithmetic. So there's also similar questions about uh, the basis for music, uh, the basis for morality, John Michael's work. Uh, there's interesting work by uh, Jeffrey Watermull, Mark Hauser, Ian Roberts, uh, discussing these questions. Some would argue that the statement, you can't know anything for certain, demonstrates nihilistic skepticism toward information and reason. The question arises whether knowledge is ultimately linked to trust and thus is practically equivalent to faith. It's been well understood since the 17th century, the collapse of Cartesian foundationalism. It was by then very clear that in the empirical world, you can't reach certainty. Uh, it's impossible. Uh, Hume then expanded on this, and by now it's just common understanding. In the empirical science, you can search for the best theory you can find, but you can't show that it's true. Uh, that's fact of life. 
Does that lead to nihilism? I don't see why. We can get better theories and worse theories. Uh, that's all we have to do. Does that undermine information and reason? No. Uh, is it equivalent to faith? Not really, because we don't have faith in the best theory. We're open-minded. Maybe there's a better one coming along. But we have reason to believe that this is the best theory of the ones that are available. That's not faith. That's reason. It's reason to say this is the best theory of the ones anybody's been able to come up with. But it's not faith to say it must be the right theory. So this is all within the bounds of reason. Uh, uh, no place for nihilistic skepticism. Thank you. Thank you so much, sir. It's always a pleasure, and I hope you enjoyed your time. Thank you for spending one and a half hours with me and the Theories of Everything channel. Thank you. Okay. It's your ninth time, your ninth time on this channel. Thank you. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so, as each subscribe and like helps YouTube push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything, where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash kurtjimungle and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.